today on the orange table. We're not holding back at all. Uh, I do have a lot of disagreement. You know, with all due respect, I think it's difficult to make the case that there isn't a problem of systemic racism within policing. I'm not gonna vote for somebody Trump or like the Republican Party because I kind of view it as like the party of the KKK. Because we all three of us actually have a commonality in that experience. I mean, my dad is oh. from Isha's family's from Nigeria. Your family from Guyana. Oh, that's really cool. I didn't. I didn't really know that. <laughs> that's amazing. Take forty minutes away from your DNC assignment and join us for the most compelling episode of the Orange Table to date. I'm Rebecca Adams, and I'm a senior in the Chemical and Biological Engineering Department, and I'm also part of the Princeton Tory, a uh, writer for the Princeton Tory, and I'm president of the Princeton Open Campus Coalition. Disclosure, anything that I say is not their official opinion, so I want to make that clear. <laughs> yeah, no, that's good to get on the record, because <laughs> we are going to be talking yeah. <laughs> a lot about free speech. Actually, we're going to start there. I was wondering if you could respond. Have you had a chance to read um, the Daily Princetonian's editorial board. Um, they just recently published a piece on free speech, urging Eyes Grouper to classify um, racist speech and hate speech um, as counter to the university's free speech policies as a violation of those policies. And I was wondering if you did read it, what some of your main takeaways were and kind of what your rebuttal would be. Yeah, um, I, I did read it um, in full and uh, I do have a lot of disagreements, as you could tell. Um, so I, I think the one thing that they were proposing was to have hate speech as harassment, uh, like included in the harassment policy. And I was like, okay, but like, how do we define it, first of all? Because the definition that is like at present is very fluid. So the one thing that we could agree on right now is like, okay, um, hate speech can include any racial slur. Um, I think we agree on that, but others may perceive it as like uh, opinions that one would may disagree with, um, or like a seemingly innocent statement, like I don't know, like the most qualified person should get the job, or America is a melting pot, things like that, um, that you know has no intent of like harming someone. And once you have that very vague definition, and you're trying to implement it in a very objective policy. Um, while the university does have an obligation to protect its students, um, it, it's going to be very broad, and you're going to like fall into this like very slippery slope, and it's only going to get worse and worse from there if we're not very careful. Um, and, and like I think another thing they were proposing was like having um, anti-racist um, training um, as part of like their first, as part of the first year orientation um, program, I believe. Um, and, you know, I understand like much of the, much of the things they're proposing are like in goodwill. So I'm not like, you know, bashing on them for just doing anything wrong. It's just the, it's the, the approach seems very, um, authoritarian and it, um, I actually like read a bit about like, um, like the premise of anti-racism and like, I, I think what I read is like based on like this critical theory, um, you know, uh, knowledge or something that like came up around the, the 60s or 70s, but I may check my history on that. <laughs> um, but it's based on several inaccuracies and it's also based on the premise that white people um, are implicitly racist. And it's not an idea I want to 
have encouraged in a place where we're supposed to be like, um, you know, respect each other as a community, um, not on the premise of race. And it, it can even go as extreme as saying like the concept of punctuality is like considered white. And I also disagree with the premise of white privilege based on like the statistics. Um, okay. And I well, could like explain more on that, but yeah. Like, no, I absolutely, but I'm just saying, you've thrown out, you just thrown out so much there that we're gonna have to, I first wanna take us back a little bit because yeah, at the beginning you were saying that there was a point of agreement between the POCC, a lot of other right-wing thinkers on campus and um, a lot of left-wing thinkers in criticizing or seeing um, the use of racial slurs as harassment. And I think that's a point of agreement that I wasn't sure about in all honesty. I think there are a lot of people on campus who are saying that racial slurs are protected under speech. That's the current policy of the administration as well. So I just wanted to kind of dive into that and make sure that there is agreement on that point, because I'm not sure it's as uh, unanimous as, as we were discussing. Yeah, um, I, I think the, the confusion really comes in with like whether or not should those words be sanctioned. So we could both agree that those words are wrong. Um, right. They shouldn't be said, right? Um, but um, one, a person like me who's like more conservative leading would think, well, even controversial bigoted speech is still protected by like, if you're to look at the like the free speech, absolutely, it is still protected under that. And right. a way to combat that is simply by communicating against those ideas and by, um, you, you know, this like, because we have the ability to exercise um, our right to free speech. So why shouldn't absolutely. we exercise that to change other, to change other people's opinions, right? Instead think, of depriving ourselves from like doing so. And yeah. me and Aisha as well, you'll definitely find an audience for more open conversation between conservatives, between liberals, between opposing views. But I'm wondering if you think there's any point that speech approaches a situation of harassment. If there's any point in which a student weaponizing racial slurs against another could, um, needs to be sanctioned in order to protect the well-being of students. Is there a point that it can get to? Um, it's, it's really hard to say now because there's so, there's so many vague lines. Um, cause I know, like, like let me just like deviate a little bit. Cause I know libel is something that can be caught prosecuted like a character attack that is very serious. Um, you know, slander or something that's wrong. Um, it's just, it's very, it's very interesting because the, the line is still uh, vague because I still believe there isn't like a societal consensus about what qualifies as um, like, uh, you know, like harassment in the context of hate speech. Like we could all agree here um, that racial slurs is wrong, but someone else may not agree. So that's why we can't like, to say, okay, let's just like sanction that. And it also depends on context as well. Um, Cause someone can just say it, but it could be part of like, I don't know, like like a lot of examples like that is used that could be part of like a, like a rap lyric or something, or that they just say it within their own like social groups. Apparently like people of a certain race could say like the N word among their social groups. I've heard it before in my high school. 
Um, <laughs> um, so I think it also depends on context, and that's why I can't really give a definite answer as to when, like, it would be considered as harassment at, at this point. Like, I have to really think about that. I just want to ask kind of like, so I think you said something about like some people might not like think of it as um, like, like if someone said a racial slur, some people like might not think of it as like harassment or hate speech or something like that. And I guess I'm wondering like, do, does that really mean that we like as a society need to like, I guess kind of fall to the whims of those people who aren't necessarily good people. Like the KKK could say, I really don't care about, you know, the N-word, but that doesn't mean that we should like agree with them if you get what I'm saying. And then I guess, I think context is also applied to a situation when you're looking at, I think rules and regulations of like the university. Like I think when they are considering like a situation or like an instance of I don't know, hate speech or maybe like a, a, a harassment or anything like that. They're going to look at context before they just like kind of make a decision on what to do with said student or said situation. So I think context is like implied before. So you can like create a rule and people are going to look, look at it through like the eyes of like the context of the situation before they even like make a decision. And so I think context is implied. And so I think maybe context doesn't necessarily need to be something that we consider when we create these rules and regulations about hate speech versus free speech. So, so to address your first point, um, I'm not saying that we should agree, obviously, <laughs> with a, a KKK member saying, like, I hate Black people. <laughs> like, I'm not saying that. Um, like, I'm trying to, like, um, I don't know how familiar you are with Daryl Davis and, like, how he managed to like somehow convert KKK members to not to like denounce the Klan and things like that. Like I'm talking about the ability to do that. Like you have these people who have these opinions and they do have the right to say these opinions, even though we disagree with them. But we also have a right to ensure that they don't like say those things by like a more civil manner by like actually like well, first by listening to what they say, but then explaining your position as to why that's wrong, and then somehow planting the seeds so that they could change. Like that, that's what I mean. Um, and, and to your second point, I think um, context is still um, quite important because I think um, you could, you can just like, you know, ban the N-word, but you can also ban black people from calling white people cracker, for instance. Um, I, I think both are wrong, and um, you know, you know, that's fine. But I, I don't think um, I, I think context still matters, if, depending on how you say or when you say it, whether you're whether you're parroting someone in the context of like a sarcastic argument or whether you're just saying it not out of hate. Because I, I've heard like things like that happen, even though I don't like the word, I don't like using the word, but I, I've heard things like that happen in that context. So I think it's really difficult to say because someone says the word, they're saying it because they're hateful, they're saying it because it's racist. Um, I think it also depends who you're talking to. Um, yeah, that, that's all I could really give on that. But. Okay, I wanna move on because I know we've been stuck on this point for a while, but I just wanna say one more thing. I think we're gonna have to agree to disagree because I am the kind of person who doesn't 
really believe in like teaching people like um like kind of like being the person to educate someone on how to be non-racist or that sort of thing because I think it's sort of taxing as a black person to have to like constantly put yourself sort of I don't I don't like in harm's way possibly you know like 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 you said with Daryl I think Davis I think I've heard of his story like he him like I think the first time he like converted a KKK member he was like in the car with him or something like that and I was like that's I wouldn't want to be in the same car as someone in the KKK but I, I understand your point but I, I'm not the kind of person who really supports that idea but I, I get where you're coming from. Can I just interject quickly because as much as we are disagreeing in this I think that this is something beautiful is happening here because I think this conversation around free speech has been massive on campus for a really long time but this is one of the first times that we're actually getting people who disagree together in the, not in the same room right because we're on the same zoom call but still actually addressing the concerns and arguments of each other and I think that I think that frankly a lot more of that needs to happen because we have been stuck on the free speech point for a while I did want to get us moving along um I think some there's something that you said two things that you said earlier that I found really interesting one was your critique of critical race theory and saying that it was founded on some uh, fundamental flaws. Uh, I want to I want to hear more about that for sure, and then maybe give us a chance to respond. So critical race theory, it's like I, I think is a very um, when I read it, it seemed like a very um, uh, Marxist premise. Well, it's based on the notion that every system in the U.S. or in Western culture uh, or civilization is based on these very systematically racist um, institutions and white supremacy and that America is like based on systemic racism and it's not redeemable. Um, and I think- Wait, I just to push that for a second. I yeah. I'm not sure if I agree with that second point there because I think that there are a lot of people who acknowledge that the United States was built on the system of slavery and was built during a time yeah, yeah. of systemic racism and massive oppression of specifically black people but i'm not sure that the critical race theory in the way that it's taught teaches that white people or the u.s as a country is irredeemable i think that there are a lot of people who espouse those ideas that still think that the whole point of that theory is that we're trying to move people forward in education no yeah but i think um i think there are several i think there are just like specific uh, players who happen to prescribe to this idea that right. um, happens to like propel the notion that America is irredeemably um, racist. Actually, let me like ask a question. So, what do you mean um, America is like founded on slavery? Do you mean like that's the only thing that it's founded on? <laughs> but I think that's the thing that a lot of Black people and a lot of critical race theorists find interesting is that the United States is founded on so many things. It's founded on those inalienable rights. It's founded on freedom and justice for all. But there was a massive contradiction <laughs> during the time yeah, it was, no, yeah. that it was founded. So I think what they're yeah. saying is that a massive portion of the populace was left behind in that vision. I, th I think that they're not criticizing or reducing all of the foundation of the country on racism, but they're pointing out the fact that <laughs> the White House, the buildings of our government were literally built by slave labor. I think they're pointing out that <laughs> the U.S. economy, as it thrived early on, was built on black bodies. They're 
pointing out the fact that early war efforts that gave the United States stature in the international community, those were, those were fought and won using black soldiers that didn't even have rights in their own nation. I think that's, those are the things they're pointing to. At least from my perception, the way it's being portrayed is that it's all negative and like there's nothing we could do about it and like you must repent for your sins or something right. like that. Right, and I think that plays um, well, yeah. I mean, that perception of critical race theory and almost just the entire approach of racial education from the left is what leads people to believe that um, Black people are almost being taught to victimize themselves. That's something you brought up and something that I hear often from Black conservative thinkers. And I'm, I'm wondering to what extent you think that that is true. The, like, I think the idea of like Black people can be individuals and they don't have to be viewed in this very collectivist like type of mindset. We are individuals in spite of being the same race. And there is a reason why um, you see certain successful black people. And there's a reason why you happen to see like these individuals just pop out of nowhere. And, and they just happen to like go past the system that works against them. Right. Um, and to pick up on your point yeah. about the black community being talked about in the collective terms and not the individual terms, I think that, at least I can speak for myself, there are a lot of Black liberals who are critical of the way that the Democratic Party is sometimes, at some points, takes for granted the Black vote. I mean, you can point to Joe Biden saying, you ain't Black if you're not voting for me, um, and so forth. There, there are definitely moments where the Democratic Party has not fought hard enough to, <laughs> to actually put forward policies that help the Black community. I think there are a lot of Black liberals who are even willing to point that out. But then the question I pose to you, and I think kind of where the confusion comes for a lot of Black liberals is how the logical conclusion to that is to then join the Republican Party. Um, given the fact that I think a lot of people think that they've given space to um, xenophobic and, and racist thinkers. So I, I wonder if that's a lot there in that question, but <laughs> do your best. Well, I'm not going to encourage, um, I'm not encouraging like black people to join any party period. Um, I, I think, I think that the premise comes with like, you should only trust yourself and your, 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 like your willpower instead of politicians that may or may not have the best interest in you. Um, and, and that's like a very like, I guess that's a very cynical way of looking at it, but I, I think that's a very practical way of looking at it as well. Um, but I, I think the reason why, like, if I were to, like, go with the argument, like, why you should be, like, or be more, like, Republican or conservative or whatever, is because, um, I, I think, first of all, it, it acknowledges individualism, which is important, which is something I mentioned. Um, second of all, uh, it pushes for full choice, which I think is important which I can explain on later, if you want. Um, also the idea that, you know, like hard work and self-reliance is important and that you shouldn't depend on a, like a welfare system that is broken and that people aren't willing to fix in the first place. I think to your point of like being a monolith, I think, I think a lot of black um, people on the left also agree with that, but I think in, in, they agree with it more in terms of like, being reduced to stereotypes and being reduced to 
just like like preconceived notions of what a black person is and i think i think um i think i think a lot of people do just kind of like vote democrat like because that's always kind of like what black people have done but i think a lot of people also vote democrat because the republican party is not something that they want to align themselves with like for me for example I think yeah there are a lot of problems with the Democratic Party and I think definitely like it, they haven't they have taken advantage of the black vote and they haven't done much to help black people recently but I'm not going to vote for somebody um like Trump or like the Republican Party because I kind of view it as like the party of the KKK that's just my opinion though I just think Wait actually Actually, historically, the Democratic Party was the party of the KKK. They actually endorsed it, but yes, it but was definitely. But I, I think that point is often brought up by um, people. But I do think there was obviously the switch in in '68, as as you know, in which a lot of um, Southern uh, conservatives switched the Republican Party from the Democratic Party. Okay, so we're gonna kind of shift the conversation a little bit to how you kind of navigate being a conservative black woman at Princeton. So I, so I guess, how do you kind of feel as like, do you feel like a part of the black community is a question I wanna ask you. Do you feel like maybe you kind of have been not included because of your political views? Uh, how do you kind of navigate that situation, that community? Um, I've always been hesitant to join um, uh, Black student groups, and when I did, I always felt that anything I say or would say that is, like, remotely conservative would probably be looked bad upon. Um, I don't know, especially when it comes to uh, discussing, like, certain topics like, I don't know, systemic racism and how to attack, uh, uh, tackle it better or how to, like, how to approach it. Um, so I don't know, for, for quite a long time until now, obviously I've been uh, very afraid to like speak out um, on these opinions and to provide a different perspective on how to look at these issues. Um, and it was, it was mainly because um, in high school when I did that, um, I was called many names, uh, you know, from, from an Uncle Tom. Uh, versus a coon, and it's it's not it's not fun, um, and you wish and you risk losing friends, and you know it it happens. So so I I just decided to keep my mouth shut um, about it for like three years, and you know just you know just be a normal engineering student, just doing my thing without getting involved. Um, so it, it's it's been like a exercise of trying to. Um, you know, just go with the flow pretty much. Um, I, I attended a couple of meetings from different like black student groups as well as like other like affinity groups as well, because, you know, I, I do like interacting with people like me. I, I think it's like a good support system nonetheless. Um, it's just when it comes to politics, it gets quite dangerous to express some of your opinions. Yeah. And then I had another question, um, kind of about you said your dad is an immigrant, and like, at, how did you kind of 
come to realize you're conservative? Does, does your family also have the same views as you? Like, do you guys agree on a lot of things or disagree on a lot of things? Like, how do you deal with that? Yeah, um, so I guess, yeah, it's like, it comes from the very West Indian premise that if you have like a uh, immigrant father who's from like Diana, well, my father's from Diana, um, and he always emphasizes like, um, you know, hard work, you gotta work hard, you gotta rely on yourself, don't trust on it, don't trust anyone but yourself, only trust in God, but, <laughs> but you know, like do these things and, and you'll, you'll be like me, you'll succeed and you'll be able to, uh, you know, one day provide for your family, things it's like interesting that. Cause we all three of us actually have a commonality in that experience. I mean, my dad is oh. from Peach's family's from Nigeria, your family from Guyana. And I think that definitely the values you're talking about of hard work and individuality, they definitely hit home. I'm sure that we can all, we all have stories we can tell about how our parents hammered home education and self-reliance. Um, and I also think it's just, it frames this conversation even a more interesting fashion is like how that ex that common experience leads to different ideological uptakes. Yeah, so I didn't want to interrupt, but I just thought it was a cool thing uh, to point out. No, that's really cool. I didn't I didn't really know that. <laughs> that's amazing. Then, um, but okay. So, but I think what my my dad like taught me was um, how to look at um, different cultures and different religions in spite of my upbringing and learned how to think for myself so he, it's not like he didn't care he didn't care like what I believe like he, he only cared that you know I followed his foundational principles obviously but like I, I learned how to really think based on that foundation um so I um in spite of like you know my more conservative upbringing there are times where I've definitely shifted more like liberal and I, I think I've been more like more to the left in middle school, came a little back in high school, and then like that shifted again in college because I was just trying to discover like, you know, how this like worked. I didn't really have like a set position in anything yet. I was still learning. Mm -hmm. That's a really interesting story of kind of ebbing back and forth. Something I really appreciate about you and kind of the way you've conducted yourself in this conversation is your adherence to stats. And there's like the one other conversation we wanted to have, I think has a lot of statistics behind it. And that's the issue of police brutality specifically affecting um, Black Americans. Um, I was looking before from data from the FBI. And of course, Black people make up 13% of the US population, but they made up 31% of all people killed by police and 39% of people killed by police while not attacking. Um, I was wondering if you could kind of respond to the reckoning over the summer with George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and so many other cases. And how, first of all, how that impacted you on a personal level. Um, actually, let's start there. I could start with a more personal level before I uh, yeah. analyze the objectives, like statistics. Um, so yeah, when I first heard of it, um, you know, obviously it's a, it's a, it's a tragedy. Um, and I think something like that should have never happened. Um, and I think the way that the, um, at, like after reading the reports and the autopsy reports and things like that, um, the way that the policemen should have, ha have handled it was not appropriate at all. Um, <laughs> like, I think we agree with that. And it, I think 
um, to me is an indicator. It, it's not so much an indicator, however, that you know, all policemen are bad. It's just that there's something wrong with either how, um, either how they're like, or how they're trained or how they, I don't know, like how they perceive. It could just be how they, how some people perceive black people. I don't know. I just see this as a training error, but that's, that's my perception. You could uh, disagree with that. Um, I know there's some nuances to the case um, based on some anecdotes that I've heard. Um, so in yeah, terms of you, like- But would yeah. you say like, given the statistics and the obvious disproportionality of them, do you think that police brutality is, is a massive problem? Like I think a lot of conservatives have not been willing to give it the time and attention and point it out as um, a disproportionate example of, of racism. I guess going back to our conversation before about white privilege, I guess the thing is you can you can point all those stats about how Asian people, black people and so forth um, can can outperform white groups in certain on certain metrics, but then at the end of the day we get to the issue of a white person, um, getting pulled over for, I don't know, in Sandra Bland's case, I think it was a taillight being out. There's a different possibility. If, if you're a black person, if you're a Latina person, you have the possibility to end up dead as a result, a statistical probability to end up dead um, as a result of a, an interaction like that, that a white person doesn't have to live in fear of. And that's kind of the, that's where I come from, the white privilege debate. I'm, I'm saying that I live an experience where I can be subjected to violence at a rate higher than you. I can, I can <laughs> face injustice at a level that is statistically unlikely for you. I guess that's that's just my perspective on it. I think that's a very fair perspective. I'm I'm not disagreeing with you that police brutality is an issue. I think it's an issue. Um, period, regardless of race. I think there's, I think there's a, a bigger um, nuanced issue still, and it's it's hard to say there is systemic police racism when there there could be. A, I, I think I remember reading there's there's issues with um, like training, mental health. Um, there's like a statistic that had like a high percentage of how many policemen are killed. Um, I don't think it also includes whether black policemen happen to shoot a black unarmed man. I think the context still matters here. So um, that, that, that's mean, really something I could explain here. I mean, with all due respect, I think it's difficult to make the case that there isn't a problem of systemic racism within policing in the United States. I mean, if you look at just the cases in our lifetime, I mean, our generation is the one that grew up, what were we, 14, 13, around the time of Michael Brown and Ferguson, and we've seen case after case after case in which we have we have it on video, Rebecca. We have we have complete evidence that it was an unjustified murder and no sort of justice um, in almost all cases. I, I mean, George Floyd's a, one of the few examples where we at least got some sort of um, outcome in terms of punishment for the officer, but. I think it's hard to make the claim that there's not systemic racism within the institution. And I think it's important to know that that's not saying then, I think it's, I think it's a somewhat of a straw man to then say that liberals are claiming that the police force 
is filled with racists at a in a, in a majority. I, I don't I don't think there are any people making that argument. I think that they're simply pointing out that there's a massive issue here that has to be dealt with. Because I, I guess I I'll push back a little bit here with all the cases because I I took I took some time to look for example at Jacob Blake case. I think that is a little bit complicated because I don't know if you recall but they found uh, a knife on like under the, like the floorboard of his car. He resisted arrest, things like that. He already had a warrant out for his arrest. Um, I really wish it didn't happen, but you know things like that. Like I don't know how to. Really... Sorry, what are you gonna say? No, I I think the big thing to point out here though is that it, we're not saying the argument on behalf of people who are viewing this as a massive problem is not necessarily that every single person who's shot by police um, does not have any difficulties in their past. But the, the important thing is that we have a videotape in the case of Jacob Blake in which, well, I, I mean, when he's approaching the car um, and the officer shoots him, I think, how many times was it? It was at, at least, I think it was seven times in the back. He, at that moment in time, he is of no threat to the officer. I mean, I think that you can make all these arguments about criminal history. You can make all these arguments about weapons that were found on the scene. But at the end of the day, that situation could have been de-escalated and not ended in a man's life being ended in front of his children. Um, I, th I think three of his sons were, were in the back seat at the time. Um, so I, I, I would push back on that saying that I don't know whether it's fair to to malign the people who this happens to and then and then use that as a way to to potentially explain the officer's actions oh no i'm i'm not justifying like the um officer's actions okay. um because i but i do want to i do want to like add a little more to that because because mm -hmm. now we're now we're, um because i remember I, I saw another videotape that he did um punch another officer who initially tried to tase him um and and that didn't work. And uh, there was like some scuffle behind the car until he walked around uh, the other side. And that's when you know he got shot yes. seven times in the back. Just to be clear, Obviously, for audience, I, there was a yeah. second video that came out. I think a couple of days after uh, that did show what you're describing, Rebecca. But I think again, there's still the point of, <laughs> I mean, the police. It's their job to de-escalate. It's their job to, no, yeah. to allow everyone to live through all of these encounters. I, I agree with that. Um, I definitely agree with that. I'm not saying that police brutality isn't an issue. I'm, I'm just right. I'm just saying that there are certain cases where, well, I'm not saying like you know there isn't an issue. There isn't like a potential even systemic racist issue. Um, that's always something I'm still trying to like you know understand and confirm because um, a part of like like every time I look at these like cases and then statistics, I'm like okay. There is like, there is like systemic like police racism, and then I find like something in contradiction. I'm like, okay, there's something nuanced here that we're missing. Um, there's, there, I don't know, there's something that we're missing here, and it's not this um, blanketed statement. I think that something that I was just interested in talking to you about, we discussed kind of the movement or of black people from the Democratic Party to the Republican Party. Um, and I'm one, I, I can't let this interview go by without asking you your opinion on Candace Owens um, 
and kind of the ownership she's taken over that whole movement. Because I mean, I, I, I think that your style in terms of advocating for conservatism is very different from hers. And I wonder if you think, I wonder what your impressions are of her and whether you, is she someone you look up to? Is she someone that you maybe are frustrated by at certain points? Um, I, I do respect her. Um, I, I think like um, she the girl, does. The girl's definitely bold. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I, I, I do respect her. Like I, I, look, I look up to her in a sense that, okay, there, there's someone like me who, you know, at least speak boldly about her position, even though I may not agree with some of the things she says. I know she doesn't believe in climate change, and I do. So, <laughs> um, surprise, surprise. Um, but I, yeah, I mean, I think, I think uh, having a very um, bold mindset is good, and I think having um, a, a like a formalized. Um, you know, black movies, like, I think, I think it's a good uh, force. Um, although, like, some of her views, I do disagree with, uh, obviously. Um, I, I do think it's important, however, to at least have some force to, um, uh, like, encourage um, minorities to, you know, like, to just think for themselves. But I think Candace Owens is someone who is more interested in the controversy of it all and more interested in in the headlines and I think that she's gotten to the point where I mean it, it's outrageous the thing the things that she said in the wake of George Floyd's murder spending most of her time on Twitter maligning the man um I just think it because this is a show about opinions I just I'm not a fan of Candace Owens I think I think that she largely operates as a way for conservative and uh, in, and in particular um, racists in our country to justify their opinion by saying that it comes out of the mouth of a black woman. Um, but I think, I think that's not to say then that the entire movement of black conservatism should then be maligned or um, taken to only be Candace Owens. Yeah, I mean, I, I like, um, I, I'm more inclined to speakers like Clasic. Um, you know, I think she's like, when I saw that, when I saw that video, I was like, yeah, that, that's someone I want to be like, <laughs> yeah, and also, I heard her. Yeah. And I saw her interview on, I watched Tim Pool, um, you know, cause I, I think he's a, a pretty interesting journalist and I think she did an interview with him and she seemed like a pretty down, uh, a very rational woman, like you said. So, um, you know, that's someone I also respect. Um, you know, like I again, I, I don't agree with uh, Candace Bowen. I'm not saying like she's obviously being censored. Um, I, I just, I guess, my advice to her was to is just to be a little more, um, you know, like open to the conversation and open to the premise that you would hope to achieve a compromise. Um, because like, like when I'm speaking to you guys, like I, I don't want to like change your, I don't really want to change your mind. I want to like hopefully reach some sort of agreement. And, and the, the good thing is that we, that we did reach certain agreement on certain points and we disagreed on other points. Uh, we did, but, we reached more agreement than yeah. I thought we would, I'll be honest. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think a good place to end it is just with 
a conversation around kind of acknowledging what happened today in terms of an, an open conversation between disagreeing parties and I guess maybe a few comments from all of us on how important this type of exchange is because we are in a moment in my opinion because I, I cover a lot of racial issues on campus for the prince we're in a moment where there needs to be a vibrant discussion about what the university is going to do um, in order to address race on campus there eyes gruber and a number of committees are right now um, deliberating on what policies they're going to put forward in terms of faculty diversification, um, racial justice education, affinity spaces, and so forth. And these are incredibly interesting and important issues. And I, I'd like to see more of a vibrant conversation on campus around um, how we go about implementing those things. And I want I want to hear from conservatives who, like yourself, might be critical of critical of critical race theory and critical of um, some of these other ideas of implicit bias and so forth. I wanna hear those perspectives and I want also um, others to have the opportunity to respond so that we can actually get somewhere. Anyone have any last thoughts on, on anything I just said or anything we talked about? Um, I think, yeah, I think I just really agree. I think it's definitely important for us to be having these conversations and I think for people to kind of come with an open mind and not necessarily to change someone's mind or change their opinion because it's likely that's not going to happen in one conversation but just to come to maybe some sort of agreement like Rebecca said because I think um I think that's kind of the best way to go about it when you have like really differing opinions yeah I I agree with that I think um the one thing that Princeton students should practice is the ability to learn how to open a conversation. Um, like whenever someone expresses a completely non-mainstream opinion, um, they should always ask, why do you have that opinion? Um, try to challenge it. Um, and they may learn something. They may, you know, reach an agreement with that other person. Um, I think it's not only good um, it's not only a good skill to communicate, but I think it's important if we're trying to make a very important uh, change within the issue of like racial uh, justice and equality um, that requires like in this case of like a policy change and addressing that. Um, so like I think a compromise uh, between like two different sides is very much in order in order for that to happen. And I think that this comes with learning how to listen and just have an open mind. Yes, hopefully there'll be many more conversations like this. We want to thank Rebecca for being here for our third episode of the Orange Table. That is a wrap.